want to um, share some more in, in my series on uh, Israel sites of Israel and all of that. I want to share a number of pictures uh, from our second, second day there. And I won't be sharing as many pictures as I go further into this. And then uh, towards the end today, I'm going to do three, uh, three short mini-sermons right in a row uh, that will make the point I want to make today. But these will kind of set the stage uh, for those, I, I hope, uh, this morning. You see on the screen here um, the uh, Sea of Galilee and this whole um, area that we have there. And I want you to note, in, in particular, Gennesar. Um, that is, would have been uh, Old Magdala uh, in the day of Jesus. Uh, it was a big uh, port on the sea, and it led over to the Mediterranean Sea, which would be over here. Um, and that was that big valley that I talked to you about last week. And so that, there was a lot of people right around this whole area. In Jesus' day, it was a town of 40,000 people. And uh, Josephus, the early church historian, tells us that there were 230 fishing boats in, in the city. I didn't know they kept track of that kind of stuff, but apparently that was the big thing to keep track of in that day. And um, it, this was the perfect place for the ministry of Jesus. If you think of all the places in the world God could have sent Jesus to, um, this this is this whole area here over here is kind of a mountain range, but there up here is where the feeding of the four and the five thousand happened. The Mount of Beatitudes there, a lot of the miracles and teachings of Jesus was right in this area. At you know, if there were forty thousand people right there, just think of all the people around this whole area um, that Jesus touched and impacted in that day. And so Jesus wasn't just seen by 300 people. He wasn't just seen uh, by a few people, but Jesus um, is credible because he was seen by thousands and thousands of people who, who were able to witness him. Now, in the next scene, we have uh, a picture of the Sea of Galilee um, facing Mount Arbel. I showed you that last week. Um, our group was up there looking down at the land over here. And the, and the sea here. Um, and then on the next one, at Guinnessar, uh, they would give tours. And so we went on uh, the NOAA boat. Um, the company, they have a whole uh, fleet of boats, and uh, they're all named after Bible characters. But we were on the, the NOAA boat, and we spent almost three hours one uh, very hot day. It was nice to have a cover on the boat out there, and we just really enjoyed that. And then the next picture is of, of myself um, up on the front of the boat with uh, Laura Long, who was the Southern Baptist lady uh, who is the administrative assistant for uh, Macedonian Ministries. Now, out there at Magdal, or Magdala, um, in January of 1986, they had a severe drought. And this boat was discovered, it came, they discovered that uh, in January that year when the water got so low. And they spent 10 days, this boat, they have done all the studies and figured out that it's at least as old as uh, Jesus. And it, it could have been a boat that Jesus spent some time in, actually. Um, 
But they found this boat and they spent 10 days just trying very carefully because, you know, after 2,000 years of sitting in water and, and mud and all of that, very, very fragile. But they wrapped it in polyurethane foam all the way around inside and out and then lifted it out little by little. And then they spent the next 10 years preserving it. And uh, any time wood's been in the water that long, if, if they just dried it out, it would just turn into like ashes and crumble. And so they had to spend years um, putting it in different solutions and all chemical solutions. They used 65 tons of chemicals over 10 years saving this boat. <laughs> Now, I don't know if that was a good use of resources or not. I, I have my doubts about that. But anyway, we have a boat from 2,000 years ago that's been preserved, uh, and it took them 10 years to preserve that boat. The interesting thing is over in the corner, um, you'll see this diagram, and the next screen um, shows that diagram. There were 12, there are 12 different kinds of wood that they identified that went into building this this boat. And, and you know, sometimes we get the idea that we are so modern and so smart and we know things that no one else has ever known. You know, <laughs> but you just think back 2,000 years ago and they knew the purpose of every one of these trees and why it should go where in that boat and why that tree should be used down the center of the boat in the bottom and and different places, and there's 12 different kinds of wood in that boat alone. And you just think about, you know, when it says, the scriptures say Jesus was a carpenter. He might have built some boat like this and had all that knowledge and background and all of that. Uh, just, just an incredible thing. Now, I'm going to move from there and we'll come back to the boat. But we spent a lot of that very, very... It was on one of the hottest days we had in Israel. Um, and it was just... It was 105 or something like that. And we were out there in archaeological ruins. And I'm not in the group because I'm back here somewhere taking the picture of the group um, because I had lost all interest at that point. <laughs> <laughs> Archaeology and that kind of stuff is not one of my big items. So I've only got two pictures. Uh, the group has a lot more. But anyway, um, you can see this is a housing district uh, that they've dug up, you know, where uh, Mary Magdalene may have lived um, in one of those houses uh, that, you know, the, the foundations are there and all of that. And then the next um, one is... This is something that we saw a lot of in Israel. It didn't matter if we were in Jerusalem or on the Sea of Galilee or wherever we went, but this is a purification bath. And you would find them outside um, of synagogues so people could purify themselves. When the priest told them to go purify themselves, you would find them in housing districts all over, you know, because Jewish, Jewish culture and all of that. But you would find these purification baths where just, you know, people went in to purify themselves if they had been uh, declared unclean and, and all of that. Then uh, the next one, right next to this, is this church. And I told you last week about my second favorite church I saw. This was my favorite church. This was down in the basement, and 
I have forgotten, or I didn't write down the name of this photo, but I'm sure I, I could look that up and find it. But this is a floor-to-ceiling painting of just feet. And you see there uh, the woman who touched the hem of his garment and was healed. And it's absolutely astounding. I walked in and saw that, and I, you know, I'm not hugely into art, but I walked in, and the, the chapel down there in the basement was built in synagogue style, and this was all the way across the front. You can kind of see the um, altar table here. But um, that was just astounding, and it just puts you in a spirit of worship and awe. Just looking at this mural of feet, the first time you walk in, you see it, and you think, they painted feet? <laughs> and then you begin to realize, oh, and, and the uh, astounding beauty of that. Then we went upstairs. And um, you know from me talking before that you know my favorite architecture in, in church uh, is cathedrals. I love the high arches. And I love stained glass windows and all of that. So I was a little bit surprised because in Israel there were a lot of that, but I was not impressed by any of it. Uh, there were too many icons and other stuff, and it just took away from all of the splendor of that. But I can usually walk into a cathedral, and I don't need any service or anything else to go on, and I could fall right into a heart of worship just by walking into a cathedral. But in Israel, this, this was the sanctuary that put me into worship. <laughs> and the very front of it has this, the whole front is glass. And then you have this boat that is the pulpit. The sound system's in there and all kinds of other stuff, but everything's running, it's Catholic, uh, and so the priest handles everything from up front in his boat. But anyway, that was cool, and, and you have the, the robe and all of that. But looking out and seeing the Sea of Galilee behind, from all points in the sanctuary, looking out the window and just seeing the huge... Uh, sea of Galilee and the trees and, and all of that. Um, one of the other things before we move on, I want to show you over here. Down the side, there were six columns with a huge window between each one of them. And, so, and on each column was one of the 12 disciples. I meant to get a photo specifically of that one and some of the others to compare contrast it. In Catholic churches, most of the time, if they have the 12 disciples, they will have the 11 and they will replace Judas with Matthias or with the Apostle um, Paul. One of those two. In this church, this modern church, what they did is they left Judas over here. But he stands out apart from all the other disciples because all the others have a huge halo over their head. And Judas is up there at the very front right corner with no halo and a purse <laughs> on his side. So I, yeah, that was just uh, fascinating. It was fascinating to see uh, in that building how much theological thinking had gone into the architecture and everything that they did 
and the reasoning they did um, behind, behind all of that. And then the next picture is just a close-up view. Uh, you see Pastor Sheldon, Tom Toole, our, our ministry leader. Uh, but And then the mountains on the other side of the Sea of Galilee over there and the trees up close and all of that. But that was, that was a beautiful thing. Now I want to talk to you about those three things that relate to this area that we were at. Magdala, I've already told you, had a population of 40,000 people during the time of Jesus. It was also a major first century port in the Sea of Galilee. It was a center of trade and commerce, and it was an exporter of salted fish. And so people would, they would catch fish and they would bring it in, they would clean them up, they would um, put them in brines and salt them and prepare them, and they would sell them to markets as far away as Europe. Even back in the day of Jesus, and Josephus tells us all of this uh, information. And so this is a major town in the day of Jesus. In that town, we also saw a synagogue, or the remains of a synagogue, and That synagogue, literally, is within 15 feet from one end of a row of chairs to the other end of where the archaeological remains are of where they clean fish. Now, I don't know about you, but I would not want to go to church right next to where dying fish were. You just stop and think about that, and you're really close. I mean, you can just see the Sea of Galilee and everything there. The the port and all of that is right there, right next to the synagogue, and the synagogue is right in the middle of fish smell all over. Now, some of you love fish smell. I don't care for it. But dead fish is even worse. (laughs) You know, and the guts and all of that. And here they are, and... So just stop and think about that. And that was common culture in that day um, for us. And I want you to think about scriptures from that light. Jesus says to his disciples, at a place just like this, come and follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Where... The synagogue and the cleaning of fish are right next door to each other. God's plan for us, that's our responsibility, that's our calling, that we take men and women and boys and girls and we clean them up, preserve them, and make them vessels that God can use in our world, and in our culture. And uh, that, that's one of the things that stood out to me as we think about Magdala. Um, the Gospels only record Jesus going there one time in Matthew chapter 15, verse 20, or 39. But we know that Jesus was there a lot because it, it's right there on the sea and it's right between towns that he's always in. And the scripture says he went to all these neighboring towns of Capernaum Uh, and spoke in the synagogue. So we know he was there numerous times, preaching throughout that whole area, and it's only 10 kilometers from Capernaum, his hometown. So he's always going through Magdala. 
When I think of Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, where it tells us that Jesus came at just the right time in human history, that God sent his son. Not only did God send his son at just the right time, but he sent him to just the right place. Where the most people could see him and the people who were uh, so involved in, in life and, and all these crowds, you just stop and think of 5,000 plus women and children listening to him at one place and 4,000 plus women and children in another place and all these towns and the crowds that saw him, that lends credibility to everything that Jesus said and did. And then I want you to stop and think about the lady that made Magdala famous, Mary Magdalene. Every one of the Gospels speaks of her as a close follower of Jesus. Now that ought to surprise us just a little bit. We ought to stop and say, oh, that ought to catch us. Here is a lady who, first of all, is a woman. So that ought to discredit her to start with in that Jewish culture of the day. But secondly, she is a woman who's been possessed seven times over. Seven demons are living within her. And Mark and Luke both tell us that Jesus cured, cast out seven demons from her. Luke also tells us that she was wealthy and that she supported the ministry of Jesus from her very own resources. And that too would have been very unique. Look at the scripture here from from Luke. After this, Jesus traveled from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. Joanna, the wife of Chusa, the manager of Harold's household. Susanna and many others, these women were helping to support them out of their own means. Now notice how Luke says that. Several of them had had demons cast out, but here's here's the wife of Chusa, the manager of Harold, Caesar, (laughs) Caesar's household, a Gentile, as far as Gentile, you know, as, as Gentile as you can get, there she was. And she's following Jesus and using her resources to support his ministry. You go on in the scriptures and then you get to the end, the last week of the life of Jesus and Mary Magdalene takes on significant importance. She is one of the few people that are mentioned at the crucifixion. Matthew, Mark, and John all mention that, that she's there. Remember what happened to the disciples? Those strong, bold, courageous men, where were they? They were not there. John was there at a distance watching. But most of the disciples, including Peter, had left, run away. But here is Mary Magdalene, from whom Jesus had cast out seven demons. And she is right there at the crucifixion, watching the man who cast out her demons be crucified. 
I can't imagine what that would have been like for her. But she didn't run from it. She stuck it out. And then the scriptures tell us that when Joseph of Arimathea came and prepared his body for burial, that Mary Magdalene was still there at the tomb, watching from a distance. And she watched all of that happen. And she watched as the stone was rolled in front of the tomb, closing out her access to the dead body of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we are told that she leaves and she comes back and she comes back with some of the women, some of the other women, and they come back and she comes back with spices that cost a good penny. And she comes back to anoint the body of Jesus, not knowing how she's going to get in the tomb because she knows the stone is rolled there and she knows that group of women can't move that stone. And she gets there and finds that the stone has been rolled away. And she goes in and finds that the body of Jesus is gone and an angel talks to her. And then you have scriptures that tell us also that that Mary is the first recorded witness to the other disciples. To those, those big strong guys who were behind closed walls, locked doors, one for fear of the Jews. And they were back there and Mary Magdalene goes and she tells them, I have seen the Lord. (laughs) Now, the point I want to make about all of that is this. Jesus can make a disciple out of anyone at any time he chooses to. Mary Magdalene was not in the running. She was not the person that you and I would have chosen. She's not the kind of person that we would have looked at and said, oh, there there comes a fine church member. (laughs) There comes a disciple. She was a woman and she was demon-possessed seven times over and she was wealthy. and, And you remember what Jesus said, easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, and an eye of a needle is not the needle that we think about, but it's rather a door about this tall, and a camel getting through that, uh, down on its knees. But he said, easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to go into the, enter the kingdom of heaven. And here this woman is, who's a woman, demon-possessed, and wealthy. And she becomes a disciple of Jesus. And Jesus saves her down to the core of her being so that she shares everything she is and everything she has with Jesus, even down to going to the cross and watching his crucifixion when all the other disciples abandoned Jesus at the cross. I want to say to you today, it doesn't matter who you are and it doesn't matter um, how you perceive yourself. I want to say to you that if Jesus can make a disciple out of Mary Magdalene that is recognized by all four of the gospel writers, Jesus can make a disciple out of you. Every one of you. And I want to say to you today that there are people that maybe you don't think of as material for God to work with. They are material for God to work with. 
You need to look at every person you encounter as somebody that Jesus can turn into a disciple. Every opportunity, every person that you encounter is someone that the Lord Jesus Christ can work with. And then I want us to talk about the boat. Jesus spent a lot of time around the Sea of Galilee. We talked last week about this major pathway of roads connecting towns that Jesus went back and forth to uh, so much of the time. But Jesus was also over here on this side in different parts of the scriptures and and a lot of times just walking back and forth and around wasn't the best way to go around. And so Jesus would get in a boat and um, he over here are the mountains and even over here uh, on the other side of these towns are are mountains kind of all the way around. And um, so anywhere Jesus was in that culture is when Jesus slipped away to pray and went up on the hill to pray. He can go anywhere and find one. <laughs> I wish there would have been a few less while I was there, but they were all there. And God didn't move them for me um, while I was there. And, uh, you know, anytime Jesus wanted to slip away from the crowds and go up on a high place and pray, he was, it was real easy to find a place uh, to go up on a, on a mountain and pray. And then there were wonderful natural amphitheaters there in which he could speak to large crowds, either at the base of the sea and people could stand and you could just hear somebody's voice a long ways away. And so, you know, what looks so impossible to our modern ears where I can't be in a little tiny sanctuary like this without a microphone is just amazing when you actually get over there and you get down by the sea and you see the way God landscaped around the Sea of Galilee so thousands of people could actually hear Jesus when he's talking down by the sea or when he would put out in a boat a few feet out into the water and it would just kind of carry his voice out to the crowds um, and all of that. But I want to say that there were a lot of a lot of people around this area for Jesus to see. And being on the sea, of course, um, a major source of travel from one place to another was by boat. So Jesus would put out from shore and he would teach from a boat. Sometimes he would decide to send his disciples over somewhere else and he would send them ahead of him. Sometimes he would get in a boat to go to the other side and sometimes uh, they all would travel together. And uh, Jesus would always use, I mean we don't have all recorded in the scriptures all the different times Jesus got in a boat. But we have all the, all the recordings of Jesus in a boat always leave some teaching. Jesus was always using a boat to teach people about him. And so quite often, while they were out in the boat, they got in trouble, like we do. We get in trouble uh, in our lives. And out here on this sea, it was so often the storms would come up through the valley, the wind would blow, and, and it could change. We saw that even in three hours that we were out there on it, it was just very still, and then all of a sudden it, it started to get uh, wavy and rocky and all of that kind of stuff. Uh, we never saw any anything bad like it talks about in the scriptures. Um, but look at this scripture from Matthew chapter 8 verses 23 through 27. Then he got into the boat and his disciples followed him. 
Suddenly a furious storm came up on the lake so that the waves swept over the boat. But Jesus was sleeping and the disciples went and woke him up and saying, Lord, save us, we're going to drown. He replied, you of little faith, why are you so afraid? Then he got up, rebuked the winds and the waves, and it was completely calm. The men were amazed and asked, what kind of man is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Now I want you to notice three things about that text. First, they faced reality. They, they didn't ignore it. They didn't pretend that the storm wasn't there, that the, the waves weren't crashing over them. They didn't just you know, go on happy-go-merry and, and not see the problem that they were in. They faced their reality. They faced the fact that there was a furious storm, that waves were sweeping over the boats, that the disciples thought they were going to drown. And they faced the reality that Jesus was sleeping in the middle of this. (laughs) And I want you to just stop and think about that line in itself. So often when you and I are out in a boat and we think we're drowning, Jesus is sleeping. (laughs) Sometimes you and I think that and he might actually be sleeping. Do you know what? Jesus does even that on purpose. Jesus wants us to learn that he intends to be with us through the storms of life. Not always to deliver us from the storms of life, but he wants to be with us in the storm. Jesus could have prevented that storm long before he went to sleep. But he was out in the boat with them and he was sleeping down in the stern of the boat. While it's rocking back and forth and the waves are beating against it and all of that, Jesus intends to be with us through the storms of life, not to save us from the storms of life. There was a second thing that those people did, a second reality. They faced their shallow faith and their fear. Jesus forces them to face their lack of faith and their fear. He describes them and he says, Oh, you of little faith, why are you so afraid? You know, those two things are twins. When you have little faith, you end up with a lot of fear. (laughs) When you have fear, your, your faith dwindles. They are twins. They go together. And Jesus says to them, You have to face this. You have faced the reality around you. But now you have to face your fear and your little faith. You see, that's the problem that the 12 spies, when they went into Canaan, that's the problem they had. They went in, they faced their reality, but that's as far as they went. They didn't go to the next step where Jesus said, you also must face your lack of faith and your fear. They refused to do that. Only Joshua and Caleb did that. The other ten stayed back there just facing their reality and doing nothing about it. So, the next thing that they are forced to face is the authority of Jesus. Jesus got up. He rebuked the wind and the waves. 
and it was calm. Now again, Jesus didn't do this on their timing. They would have preferred that Jesus do this sooner. <laughs> when, when they reached out to him in a panic, and when they were about to really learn something significant about who Jesus was, and valuable about Jesus for their future, is when Jesus stopped the storm. Henry Nouwen is a Roman Catholic mystic who uh, I, I believe has passed away now, but he has written a, a great deal of devotional uh, type of material. And he writes this. He says, the issue here is this. To whom do I belong? To God or to the world? Many of my daily preoccupations suggest that I belong more to the world than to God. A little criticism makes me angry. A little rejection makes me depressed. A little praise raises my spirits, and a little success excites me. Often I am like a small boat on the ocean, completely at the mercy of its waves. I love that last sentence. Often I am like a boat, small boat on the ocean, completely at the mercy of its waves. That's what the disciples felt. They were in a small boat completely at the mercy of its ways, even though they had Jesus in the boat. Well, what do I want to do with that? Oh, my time is gone. Jesus makes disciples in the boat of life, where he forces us to face reality, but he moves us on to face our fears and lack of faith, and then to face the future with Jesus. Whatever that future is, Jesus wants us to take our reality, look at who we are, where we are, and our lack of faith, and then go forward, not in just the picture of the reality, and not in just our fears, but go forward with Jesus into the future. Two things I want you to know this morning. Jesus is credible. You can trust him. You can trust his word. Thousands upon thousands saw Jesus. Recorded. His, his words, his ministry, his, his miracles, all of that you can trust. Secondly, I want you to know that whoever you are, whoever you meet, can become a disciple. And we are called to go and make disciples. You can become a disciple. You can help other people become disciples. And then what do I want you to do? I want you to become a disciple in the boat of life. Even in the boat of life. Even when it's out there on the sea and things are pretty rough, face your reality. Face your fears. And lastly, face the future with Jesus.